G'day sports fans, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports by Fry podcast coming at you on Tuesday evening, a few days out from the NBA trade deadline. We haven't seen any deals as of yet. It's very possible that you're listening to this on Wednesday morning and there's already been a couple of big trades, but I'm going to just discuss slightly a couple of things to do. Uh, with the trade deadline, a couple of NBA tidbits, and then uh, talk about some AFL fantasy stuff for a change. I put the call out on socials for crew to hit me up for a bit of a Q&A sesh. I reckon I'm going to do a couple more of these before round one lockout, so stay tuned to Twitter and Instagram to fire all your questions through. Uh, I did drop an article on Jordan Sweet on the Dream Team Talk site for the Traders Boys as well, so you can go and check that out. My fourth Deck of DT article, one still to come, that arrives on Valentine's Day. It'll be very fitting once uh, you understand who I'm writing about. But let's not waste any time and get stuck into today's episode. I want to talk awards very briefly. The next Sports by Fry article that I do will be looking at which awards 50 games through the season are still up for grabs. Because I'll be honest, when you look at the betting markets, there's heavy favorites for your sixth man of the year, most improved player, even most valuable player. And that's where I want to hone my sights on today, talking about the MVP race. As we know, Joel Embiid is now going to miss probably the rest of the regular season, if not the majority of it, with not surgery. Philadelphia made sure that they used every other fucking term in the book. But Joel Embiid is not having surgery. He's having a procedure done where he is uh, repairing a flap of his meniscus. It's a knee that He's already had meniscus uh, injuries with in the past. So huge bummer for the Sixers and Embiid. But as I said, it does slightly open up the MVP race. Nikola Jokic is the overwhelming favorite uh, on Sportsbet at the moment. He's $1.57 to take out the award. And I think he deserves to be sitting in the box seat. But there's a few players that I want to touch on. The second shortest odds at the moment belong to Shea Gilgis-Alexander at $3.50. I think he can legitimately make a case at winning this award. Now, when you look at the win-loss column, the Nuggets are only half a game behind the Oklahoma City Thunder. There's actually only half a game separating the top four teams in the Western Conference. And I think the MVP is going to come from one of these teams. No offense to Giannis or Jason Tatum or these other blokes who deserve to get MVP votes, even Jalen Brunson as well, who's balling right now. But I do think that... Shea Gilgis-Alexander can make a push for the MVP award. The Thunder are currently 35 and 15, winning 70% of their games. That means that they're probably going to win in the high 50s. If they take out the one seed, they make another move before the trade deadline to bolster their big man depth. Then we might see a world where SGA makes a serious push at this award. But the player who's getting no love whatsoever that I want to talk about is Kawhi Leonard. He's currently 56 to one to win the award. Part of the reason why his odds are so long is because Jokic is such a short favorite, but no one's given Kawhi any raps. And I'll be honest, I poo-pooed the James Harden trade. I really didn't think it was going to work as soon as they got him into the uh, Clippers stadium. But shout out to Kawhi Leonard, who has been playing like an MVP and he's on a tear at the moment. For the season, he's averaging about 24 and a half points, six and three and a half, call it. But The fact that the Clippers have been rolling through the Western Conference, I think with the exception of the Cleveland Cavaliers, they have the best record since we turned over to 2024. Kawhi's not getting any love. And I know with Paul George in the mix, James Harden as well, you can even count, uh, who's the other big, uh, you could say Russ, but I get that there's a lot of big names 
uh, running around for the clips at the moment. But I think Kawhi Leonard's a name just to watch and monitor in the MVP race. I'm not going to be taking a punt on him at 56 to one, but I will not be shocked if he finishes in the top four or three for this award when the season is done. I did briefly talk about how the Clippers have been a hot team. So have the Cleveland Cavaliers. They won their 14th game in 2024, taking their record since the calendar flipped to 14 and two, the best start to a year in quotation marks that the Cavs have ever had. And it looks like they're not going to stop winning. Now their strength of schedule in February is the second easiest, obviously they've already played a few of those games, but after their surge and winning, call it 90% of their last two um, five weeks of games, they've actually vaulted themselves right up to second in the Eastern conference. I did do uh, a little bit of a over-unders pod before the season commenced. And I did talk about why I was hammering Cleveland's over. I think that they're poor four of Donnie Mitchell, Darius Garland, Jared Allen, and Evan Mobley. They're all legends. Like they're the franchise, the, uh, the foundation you can build a franchise around, right? There's a little bit of a clash timeline-wise with some of those pieces. And the big thing for Cleveland is going to be watching them to see how all these dudes mesh now that Garland and Mobley are back, but they look like the Cleveland that we saw last year kind of vault into uh, top six contention out East. Their defense is clicking. Like I said, they've got Evan Mobley and Darius Garland back, which I, in my mind is undoubtedly going to make them better. They do have the sixth best record overall, highlighting the fact that there's a lot of good teams out in the Western conference. And the fact that they are playing in the East, they'll probably win more games than they should if you know what I mean. I think the Bucks or the Knicks as well, you can't really sleep on for that second seed. Quick tangent into the New York Knicks. They've also been bowling behind Jalen Brunson. Uh, OG Ananobi's obviously been a difference maker. I still think they need to add another guard. Malcolm Brogdon's the name that's been linked to them quite a bit. Maybe we look at Jordan Clarkson. Maybe they talk to Colin Sexton, one of those Utah dudes. But if they can get one of those other pieces, I have confidence in the New York Knicks being able to make a run for the Eastern Conference Finals. They... Uh, upset mm, wasn't, wasn't a massive upset, but they were underdogs going into the series against Cleveland last year and then took it right up to the heat as well. So I think that the Knicks are another team that we can watch over the next couple of days and see how they uh, they approach the trade deadline. But if they can get Julius Randle healthy, Mitchell Robinson as well, who is probably still at least a month away from returning to the court, but if he starts to ramp himself up closer to the playoffs, that might be another difference-making piece for them. The Boston Celtics and the Bucks, we know what they're going to deliver. But I think now that Joel Embiid is injured, those top four spots in the Eastern Conference are going to be hotly contested uh, to see who can try and squeeze themselves above the other peers and separate themselves as the second-best team in the East. Quick, a quick little uh, tangent to a couple of other trade bits and pieces. Here are some teams that I'm very confused on, and it doesn't appear that there's too many sellers at the deadline. I've listened to a lot of Woj's uh, pods in the last couple of weeks, and he's talked about how as the trade season kind of ramps up, everyone's waiting for a big move or for something to happen, but everyone also seems to still be kind of sitting on their hands. And the addition of the play-in game means that teams won't be aiming for the bottom as quickly, in quotation marks, as they may have in previous seasons. And there's a couple of squads that I'm just really fucking confused with. I'll be honest. Like if you look at the Chicago Bulls, for example, as it stands right now, they have the ninth best record in the East. So they'd be a play-in team. They're four games below 500. Vucevic uh, came out earlier today and said he doesn't want the front office to break up this nucleus. Uh, and they're reportedly also looking for a similar return uh, 
as what OG Ananobi was traded for if they are going to part ways with Alex Caruso. So good luck trying to fetch uh, those type of returns. But I'm very confused as to which way the Chicago Bulls are aiming. Obviously, Lonzo Ball's injury derailed any chance they had of being a legitimate title team. When Levine, DeRozan, Vooch and Lonzo started their tenure together, they had some bright moments. They look really good on defense, but they're kind of just making up the numbers at the moment, in my opinion. So there are some teams that have a head start on them in the tanking race, but maybe if you're the Chicago Bulls, you rip the bandaid off and start to remove some pieces. See if you can trade Zach Levine in the off season. He's obviously out now for the rest of the year with a foot injury, but I am confused about the Chicago Bulls. I'm also confused with the Brooklyn Nets who are a couple of games worse than the Bulls. They're not in the play in race at the moment. And they have been fielding a lot of offers for Mikhail Bridges over the last week or so. And they remain adamant that they're not going to trade him. Word on the street is that uh, there was a five first round pick deal offered for Mikhail Bridges that they said no to. They're not listening to anything to do with Nick Claxton. They want to keep him around long-term. But I don't think I like a lot of their roster, I'll be honest. Like Ben Simmons, we know how uh, yo-yo he can be. Obviously, he's contracted for another couple of years. Cam Johnson, who they got in the Mikhail Bridges trade, there's still a little bit to work out. His role, it's a bit clunky at the moment. Spencer Dinwiddie is another player that whose name has popped up on the uh, trade machine a couple of times. He's an expiring deal, and he doesn't really fit with Brooklyn, but some of the value pieces I think that other teams will try and pry away are their wing players. Now, Dorian Finney-Smith came to Brooklyn from, pretty sure he came straight from Dallas, but regardless, the Dallas Mavericks are interested in bringing him back. He's the type of player that can help space the floor, defend a lot of forwards, play a bit of small ball five if you need. So he is definitely someone to monitor as a trade chip over the next uh, couple of days. And similar could be said for Royce O'Neal. He's on a expiring deal. A contending team might throw a little bit of uh, draft capital at uh, another franchise to try and pry him away from Brooklyn. But yeah, when you reel off their top seven names, I do love Mikhail Bridges, but all these dudes are kind of in their prime or approaching the end of it. You know what I mean? Like Bridges is 27. Cam Johnson's 27. Ben Simmons is 27. Dinwiddie and Finney Smith are 30. Rose O'Neill's 30. Nick Claxton's a bit younger, but you get my drift. With the exception of maybe Cam Thomas, if you wanted to pump him up. There's not a lot to like for the Brooklyn Nets at the moment. Changing my tune, the last team that I'm confused by is the New Orleans Pelicans. And they, unlike the Bulls and Nets, are actually winning. And they're looking pretty decent in doing so. They're the seven seed right now in a hotly contested Western Conference. But do they have enough to do anything? You know what I mean? Like, I don't think a trio of CJ McCollum, Zion, and Brandon Ingram is winning you a ring. Can it get you to the West Finals? Probably not either. So they have some youngsters who I fucking love. Herb Jones, Dyson Daniels, shout out Australia. Uh, Trey Murphy's another wing who I've got a lot of confidence can become an all-star. Jordan Hawkins is shooting the piss out of the ball to start his career. So there's pieces there and young dudes that I really like the looks of. And they've got handy role players as well in the form of Jose Alvarado. You look at someone like Larry Nance Jr. I think that he is underrated for what he brings to a franchise. So do the Pelicans just kind of make a move? Is there something out there that they can try and finagle to enhance themselves as a contender in the West? I can't see it happening before the trade deadline in a couple of days. No one's trading for CJ or Zion or something of that ilk. But if I'm running the Pels, I'm considering an alternative path, call it, uh, in the off season. Because what they've got at the moment is good. 
it might be pretty good, but I don't think it's great. So we'll have to monitor them as well as the trade deadline gets closer. A team that I'm not confused by, but one last team I want to mention is the Utah Jazz. Now, they have had a lot of their players linked to trade rumors in recent times. Laurie Markinen is obviously the bell of the ball if Utah does decide to uh, trade this current, uh, trade away some pieces of this current iteration of their team. They do have some handy role players that can help contenders as well. Kelly Olinick's a name that I probably haven't mentioned much on this podcast, but if he is to go to a team like Boston or uh, Sacramento doesn't really fit, but another team to try and vault them over the edge, give them a bit of big man depth, maybe even OKC, maybe Kelly Olinick's the piece that could really uh, assist them. Then I'll be interested to see how the Utah Jazz explore the deadline. They have been linked to DeJounte Murray as well. And I think just on the surface, if I'm Atlanta and I'm calling the Lakers or the Utah Jazz about a potential uh, DeJounte Murray trade, Utah can offer way better prospects, way better picks. So I would be very quickly hanging up the phone of the Lakers. So we might see DeJounte end up in LA. And that was my uh, prediction about a week ago. But I wouldn't be shocked if uh, the Utah Jazz make a late push either. This won't be a long podcast today, but let's dive into some AFL fantasy bits and pieces first. As I said, uh, I did publish uh, this morning my article on Jordan Sweet, the former Port Adelaide, uh, former Bulldog now, current Port Adelaide power Ruckman, who is an intriguing AFL fantasy starting pick. Now, he cost you 387k. He does have uh, ripping numbers in the VFL. He's got solid numbers of score, like a track record of scoring in his limited AFL games. I did a little bit of maths and some useless sports by Fry stats for you. When uh, Jordan Sweet was the lead ruckman, didn't play with another ruck. He averaged 70 points in seven career games. When he was playing second fiddle as a supporting ruckman, he only scored 44. And I think when it comes to picking Jordan Sweet, we're not going to know until the team sheets drop for round one, really, how... uh, risky it's going to be to make a play for sweet and costing an extra 187k from some bench picks there's no certainty that he's going to keep the starting ruck role in port adelaide his price tag is hard to justify finding room for him so i can see why people are ignoring him but the big asset in starting with jordan sweet is maybe just maybe if he's port adelaide's lead ruckman he can be a fieldable option for coaches who are starting with either max gorn Brody Grundy, or maybe even both when their early buy round hits. So I could talk in circles about the red flags that are associated with Sweet or his potential scoring upside if he is the R1 for Port, but we really won't know until uh, the first team sheets are revealed of the season. But I will be watching him very closely if Port decide that they can't operate Jordan Sweet and Solder and they have to pick one of them, then that could be a fantasy goldmine if Sweet gets the nod or... It might be something we can draw a line through if Ivan Soldo gets the edge as well. Like I said, I did put the call out on the socials for a couple of questions from coaches. And Chris Reed was someone who was asking quite a bit about the Jordan Sweet option. And he did say, if we don't go for Sweet and we don't want to spend up, who's the best R3 option? And the most popular one at the moment is Max Heath. Very handy ruck forward that most coaches would have used as a bit of a loophole option last year. He sat in my side all season. Uh, I don't think he played from memory, but he was very convenient because I also had Rowan Marshall. I could do a lot of loophole action and use a uh, bit of uh, DPP if necessary to try and get him into my forward line, et cetera. So he is someone that intrigues me if he can get a game. I can't see it happening though. The bloke that I've plugged in at the moment is another ruck forward who costs 200K and that's Harry Barnett from the West Coast Eagles. When he was drafted 
last offseason by the Coasters. All the raps around him were that he was the best ruck prospect in the class. He was going to be West Coast's long-term uh, succession plan for Nick Nat as a starting ruckman. Now, they have recruited Matt Flynn, so that probably keeps him buried a bit on the depth chart behind uh, Flinney and Baz Williams. But I do like the looks of Barnett. He put up solid numbers in the waffle last year as well. And another factor when I'm picking this R3 is I want to, if he's not going to play, because let's be honest, this R3 spot usually gets burned. If we're not going to have someone that plays, I want to have a player that I can use for loophole purposes. And if you have followed WA footy, you know that the West Coast Eagles usually have one of those last time slots when it comes to a Sunday game. So the fact that they're probably going to be playing a couple of later games, especially early on in the season, it does give me optimism that we can lock in Barnett as that R3 pick and maybe we can toggle him around when it comes to uh, capitalizing on a handy vice-captain score. There are a couple of other bench players who are intriguing from a uh, R3 standpoint, but I don't think any of these guys are honestly going to get a game. If they did, then their ownership would skyrocket. But Toby Conway, he's 316K. He's a Geelong uh, Ruckman. He might be another option, but again, you have to spend up a little bit to pick him. So if you don't want to go down the Max Heath route like everyone else and you want a 200K bloke, then I think Harry Barnett is the pick of the bunch. A couple of other questions that got flicked through. Since you've been gone, shout out to John, uh, big time fantasy fan. Uh, good to hear from you, mate. He dropped a question asking who my top five breakout candidates were. On the last Sports Bee episode, I did go through all the mid prices. I think I spent about 40 minutes talking about 30-ish players who I think have some value. But let me just give you a couple of quick fire ones in each line who intrigue me the most. Kitty Coleman, I've talked about him at length this offseason. I think the fact that he has the round two buy is scaring a lot of people off. But after doing a little bit of shuffling with my team, he's someone that I've put back into my on-field mix. Brady Hoff is another one for West Coast, priced in a similar bracket to Marcus Windhager, both of whom I like. I think they could be really big 15, 20 point uh, value plays in the back line. We'll have to wait and see what their role looks like throughout the preseason, but I have a lot of confidence in both those guys at this current point. I'm trying to pick guys who haven't had their breakout yet. Cause I was looking in the rucks. You could pick Brody Grundy. He's probably going to be 20 points better, but he's already broken out in quotation marks. So the midfielders, George Wardlaw is the easy pick, but the one who has made his way into my current starting fantasy side and someone who, the more that I think about it, the more I think I'm going to pick is Jai Newcomb. Now, I've talked about Josh Ward on this pod before, talked about Connor McDonald, talked about Hawthorne potentially making a leap in the standings, and I don't think there'll be a finals team, but I wouldn't be shocked if they were around the mark halfway through the year. Newcomb, I think, is going to be the big uh, beneficiary from a fantasy standpoint, and he's giving me a lot of Caleb Sarong vibes. He obviously spent a bit of time in the VFL and was a mid-season pick, a couple of years ago, and we have seen John Newcomb put up some massive scores throughout his career so far. We've also seen that he is a tackling beast. So I think if the number three for Hawthorne does slide into a consistent M1, he's the lead dog in the midfield. I think that as a result, we'll see his fantasy numbers skyrocket. He's only got 51 games of experience under his belt, but in his debut season, the back half of the year, he played seven games and scored 50 he then went off in 2022 and averaged 87 from 22 games. So a massive 37 point leap. And then he bumped that up by about six or seven points last year 
playing 22 games as well. So hopefully this is the year that he can increase that average by about 10 to 15 points and he can become one of the household names in the midfield. As I look to the rucks, I've talked about Jordan Sweet. I think he's a solid bench option. Probably can't trust him on your field though. The value and the breakout candidate that I like though is Tristan Cherry. I'm not too put off by his off-season facial injury. He's still being able to run. There's still five weeks before footy starts and we know that he can score well. We saw him score well in the two games he played without Goldie last year. And even in the start of the season, he had about 25, 28 points uh, before he got injured late in the first quarter. So Tristan Cherry is someone who I think uh, can offer a lot of value for coaches. I don't think I have the kahunas to pull the trigger on him, but yeah, watch this space. Looking at the forwards, Connor McDonald is my favorite of the uh, uh, decent price blokes. And that kind of ties into the next couple of questions that I've got as well. So as I mentioned, Connor McDonald, I had Hawker ask me thoughts on an all mid-price forward line and loading up on defense. And then longtime fan Anthony asked, is having Taylor Adams at F1 a legitimate option this year? I don't like any of the top forwards. Uh, to be honest, I have McRae still in my side and I think I'll keep him there, but I feel you. There's not a lot of forwards that I have a lot of confidence in rolling into the new season. So Hawker did talk about the idea of loading up on these dudes who have potential 10, 15 point upside, like a Taylor Adams. If he's your F1 ant, I think that that's a fine play, to be honest, especially if it allows you to upgrade elsewhere around the ground. I think the back line does offer some t- uh, underpriced players. They've got your likes of Hayden Young, uh, Nazaire Wanganin Miller, Harry Sheasel, Nick Dacos, Tom Stewart, all those guys we think are going to be around the mark. So if you can afford three or four of those guys by going cheap in the forward line, it's not a terrible tactic to utilize, in my opinion. We'll have to wait and see closer to round one how some of these guys have performed in the preseason and if we think that they are going to be great or not. But there's definitely meat on the bone when it comes to picking forwards. Josh Rochelle is someone that I've talked about quite a bit as well. He's priced pretty similar to Connor McDonald. Just under those blokes, you've got guys like James Harms, Brent Daniels, Liam Baker, even Zach Fisher. Uh, There's probably a couple of others that I could reel off their names. But I think if you do want to go a bit cheaper in the forward line this year and it allows you to load up in defense, which means you can afford to start with Dacos, Stewart, Hayden Young and Wanganeen Miller, then I think it's a wise move. And if Taylor Adams is your F1, as long as he's named in round one and there's not too many other players that seem like they're going to eat into his workload, then I think, like I've said multiple times, I think he's going to go back to being a 90 high eighties type of scorer anyway. So in answer to a couple of those questions, nothing wrong with going cheap in the forwards to load up in defense. And there's nothing wrong with having Taylor Adams at F1. And that's all I've got for your quick fire Tuesday pod. I will be back probably on Friday, maybe Thursday night. Oh no. I will not be here Thursday night because uh, your usual scheduled programming is interrupted by a Blink-182 concert. So I'll be back quite dusty on Friday morning to uh, rack up everything that's happened in the NBA trade deadline. And I'm sure there'll be some AFL fantasy bits and pieces to address as well. As always, I appreciate you listening to this episode. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast for future reps and I will catch you next time.